Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 16 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, June the 1st. First of all, I talked to Steve McLeod, an ex-firefighter, who set up the very successful business, Fire and Safety Australia. Steve has mentored and coached 300 business owners and leadership teams, and he identifies what makes a great leader and where companies are going wrong. He has some great insights. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Dr Shane Oliver, analysing how the markets are coping with with the volatility and what to expect. But first, let's talk to Steve McLeod. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Steve McLeod, tell us about your book, Courage for Profit. Well, look, I wrote the book Courage for Profit because after a six-year journey as a full-time firefighter and then 10 years journey in business, I really wanted to reflect on what are the things that enabled me to grow a reasonably large-sized national business over the 10-year period. And reflecting on my time in the fire brigade and the courage that's required to go into emergency situations, really, I think business leaders, really, courage is a word that's not spoken about often. But I think it's a word that should be spoken about, the courage to make the decisions, the difficult decisions, and the courage to move the business forward. So for me, this was really a way to reflect on the last 10 years and hopefully give business leaders something of value about what are the courageous decisions they need to make in their business to enable them to move forward. 
Okay, so I mean, you set out four tenets of what makes a good leader. What tenets are they? Well, so I had an equation, which is success. So every business owner has a different definition of success, whether it's growing a billion-dollar business, whether it's making a difference in the world. Every leader thinks about success differently. But to me, success equals vision, having a strong and compelling vision for the future, courage, having the courage to make the difficult decisions, the tough decisions, when everything's burning down around you to, to continue to go forward, relentless discipline, making sure that you do the things required day after day, week after week, month after month, that really means that we take you know, laziness off the table, we take excuses off the table. And last one being thirst for improvement. How do we keep growing ourselves as business leaders so that we continue to acquire more skills and more knowledge to move us forward? So to me, success equals vision plus courage plus relentless discipline plus thirst for improvement. What stories can you give me to illustrate that from your experience? If I look at my experience, you know, I started Fire and Safety Australia 10 years ago, which is my main business. And I started on my own in my days off from being in the fire brigade. And so for me, it was about what's my vision for the future? Why am I really doing what I do? And why am I passionate about what I do? And how do I make sure that I have the courage to continue even when things are getting tough. So even when everyone's saying no, even when competitors are undercutting your price, or later on when we had 100 staff dealing with tragedies like an employee who died on the weekend in a skydiving accident or by going through some difficult legal situations. So to me, that word courage is what I reflected on when going, you know, what's the language I want business owners to use? What's the word that I really associate with business leaders that grow a significantly sized business? And to me, that word was courage. Right, okay, okay. But at the same time, I take it from what you're saying that failure wasn't really an option for you when you started working in uh, Fire and Safety Australia. Well, at the time, you know, I started the business and it was in 2007, the same year that my wife and I bought our first house, it was the year we got married. And so for us, a year into the business, we took out an extra mortgage of an extra $40,000 on our house that we really didn't own much of anyway. And... To me, failure would have meant that, you know, we would have lost our house. We would have been in big financial difficulty. And so I tried to take failure off the table. My biggest fear in that time was regret. I didn't want to go two years, five years, 10 years and go, you know, I should have worked a bit harder. I could have done a bit more. I could have done some more phone calls. I could have done a better job and regret. So to me, it was that relentless discipline of doing the calls, providing great customer experiences and making sure that I really get things done to grow the business. So that's why that relentless discipline is the only word. If I look back around my success over the last 10 years in business and other business owners that I've mentored or coached, it's that relentless discipline that even though there's lots of things happening day to day and there might be payroll issues or cash flow issues or customer complaints, how do you make sure you're doing those key things required to move the business forward? So Failure was off the table. If we, I just put it out of my mind and said, I'm just going to keep going day after day until we achieve our vision. Right, right. So you take it completely off the table and it's just not in the equation at all. Well, I'd be lying if I said I never thought about it. So, of course, there are times as a business leader where, you know, different months go by, years go by, when you think, oh, things aren't going well, what could the consequences be? But what I'm saying is, to me, it's not failure that things, I mean, I've made hundreds of mistakes over the years, 
But to me, failure is giving up. So I wanted to take giving up off the table. I wanted to make sure that no matter what, that I didn't give up, that even when things were difficult, that I kept persisting and kept persisting. But I've had many failures in business with wrong decisions, but none of them resulted in me giving up. Tell me, I mean, there are many pitfalls of being a leader. I mean, there are issues all leaders come across where they have to deal with crisis situations. What are the ways to do that? I think with me, I mean, I certainly had a year of crisis in 2015. You know, I had four of the toughest things any business leader will go through in a year. I had an employee that left the business and became a stalker. I had an employee who attempted suicide whilst in a remote location, and we were able to help that person back to work. We had a significant legal case. And toughest of all, I had a senior manager in the business die tragically in a skydiving accident during a weekend. And so to me, that that year tested me more than anything else. So I think that the number one thing which kept me going over that time, because that was the toughest, most difficult time as a leader that I've ever faced, even during times in the fire brigade, we're going to fatalities and going to different incidents. You know, dealing with those things firsthand with people that you knew within the business was exceptionally tough. So to me, it's about what is that strong, compelling vision of what success looks like in the future? If I wasn't honestly, truly passionate about what we do and why we do it, you know, for me, the Business Fire and Safety Australia was about providing great training and services so people go home from work, so that people don't get injured, people don't die at work. If I didn't have a strong and compelling vision that pulled me there, there's no way that I'd still be in business today. So that strong, compelling vision of the future and having that courage that even when things are going difficult, you're able to push through, you're able to start another day. And you're able to build that resilience over time. So the other thing I don't think you should be afraid of is when there's times of crisis, as a leader, I've been less consultative and more directive. So when things are going difficult in a business are going bad, whilst I will harness people's ideas, we don't have time through committees and work groups. I'll try and make quick decisions to get us on the right path. If we're in a time where business conditions are difficult and we need to remove staff or expense from the business, I'll get ideas and thoughts and opinions from senior leaders, but ultimately I'll make a decision, we'll make it quickly and we're able to move on. I think sometimes leaders put it off and the longer they put off making a decision, particularly a difficult decision like not working with a customer or removing a staff member, I think they're better off to confront it head on and make a decision so they're able to continue forward. So how would you extrapolate that to businesses generally? I think businesses generally aren't making courageous decisions. I've worked with and, and, and mentored and taught three to 400 business owners between $250,000 in revenue and up almost to $100 million in revenue, business owners and leadership teams. And what I continue to see is that people are making decisions based on how they want to be portrayed, based on how they want their team members to think of them, rather than making the decision that needs to be made. So as an example... There was an IT business that I did some work with and continually they were losing money every year. And the business owner called me up almost in tears and said, Steve, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. I need to get this right. So by not having the right profits, by having too many people in the business, it was killing the business really slowly. Even with more investment, the business was slowly dying. So after mapping it out on the board and saying, well, what's the reason that we have all these team members here? We just don't have the work. And the answer that the person said to me was, well, 
I don't want to tell the staff that, that something's not working. I'm worried that if we remove any people, it will hurt our culture. And I reminded him that his role as the leader of the business was to do the greatest good for the greatest number. You know, the principle of triage as an emergency services worker is you can't save everybody. What's the greatest good for the greatest number? How do I protect my other 30 staff or my under 100 staff? So they made the courageous decision at this point to remove four people from the business, which were redundancies from the business. Now it's a business which is profitable and sustainable that can weather the short terms ups and downs. So I think a lot of leaders try and do a decision to please everybody, but they end up making the wrong decision for the business, which is why that word courage to me is important. It's the courage to back yourself, the courage to make sure the decisions you make are for the good of the whole business, not just the good of the leader's reputation within the business. So I see a lot of times that easy decisions are made rather than tough decisions that are actually required for long-term health of the business. Steve McLeod, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Now, uh, Shane Oliver, the markets last week, it was a mixed week, you know, political issues dominating. There were renewed trade worries out of the US. There was the cancellation of the North Korean summit. And there was problems about the formation of a populist coalition government in Italy and uh, the oil price had an impact. What's your view about this? Well, it's certainly been a messy uh, time over the last week or so. Uh, Geopolitical issues have come back in a big way, obviously uncertainty about the trade war issue, although I tend to think that uh, China and the US will ultimately reach a negotiated solution. And there are positive signs on that front with the talks between the two. But obviously you've got those issues around North Korea, the off-again, on-again summit, um, creating a bit of uncertainty Um, issues around Italy. I think, though, if you sort of look back a little bit, a lot of this is really just noise. Uh, Donald Trump's comments um, do add to the volatility, but by the same token, he does tend to say what he thinks at the time. And a lot of what he's saying is really aimed at um, posturing around negotiation. So I wouldn't necessarily get too distracted by those things, even though the market does. Um, Italy is a bit more of a concern. I'd certainly be staying well clear of Italian assets at present because that uh, coalition government looks like it's going to significantly ease fiscal policy in Italy, which you could say might be a good thing. But the trouble is when you've got so much debt that Italy has, it's going to create problems and it will also create tensions with the rest of Europe. I think ultimately it'll probably have to back off a little bit, but that's going to create a bit of a bit of volatility. But I think at the end of the day, all these things are certainly out there. They are causing this volatility in markets. But as long as the global economy remains fine, which seems to be the case at present, and inflation overall remaining reasonably low, then that's an environment where share markets can move ahead. But as we've seen so far this year, it's going to remain a volatile year compared to last year. Right. I mean, the issue about Italy is interesting because, I mean, ultimately the Italian government will probably have to back down because it will look a bit like happened with Syriza in Greece, I guess. But uh, And Italy will have to remain in the euro because it's probably too costly to leave, I would say. I think that's right. If you look at uh, the problem for these countries, once they're in the euro, um, is getting back out again. And that's not so easy because you would have to re-denominate your currency. The trouble is that all your citizens, companies and individuals, got their money in bank accounts denominated in euros. 
everyone knows that if Italy goes back to the lira or something like that, then it will probably devalue, devalue substantially, maybe 15, 20%. And so there'd be a capital flight. People wanting to get their money out of their banks into euros under the bed or in other countries. Uh, so sort of overcoming that hurdle, I think, is a huge one. You'd also have this situation where Italy does have a budget deficit. Suddenly their bond yields would go through the roof as investors fear that they'd be paid back in devalued liras or um, there'll be a default. And we saw all these issues around Syriza a few years back in relation to Greece. They came in, uh, or, or their mandate, or their, their, their policy originally was to leave the euro, then they found that to be too difficult, had to back away. And, of course, now Syriza is really just another centrist eurozone um, political party, um, and the Greeks seem pretty committed to the euro. So... I think that's what ultimately lies ahead for Italy, but it's the path to get to that point that obviously creates uncertainty for markets, as it did in Greece. Well, that would suggest, though, would be that in the process uh, it will cause uh, lots of volatility in the share market, and that includes Australian shares, because I remember the volatility around the time of the Greeks exit, and um, uh, there's a risk of a move by Italy to exit the euro. Well, that uncertainty around those issues, uh, yes, will create volatility. Um, and I think you're right to say we did see that with uh, with Greece a few years ago around the Grexit debate. So if uh, an Itexit, or some people call it an Italeve, um, comes up on the agenda, then that's going to create a lot of volatility, even though I don't think it'll ultimately happen, but it can cause a lot of volatility in the process. And, of course, you might think, well, what's that got to do with Australia? Well, I guess Eurozone is the is the uh, the world's third largest economic block um, behind the US and China. And of course, anything that, that causes upset in the Eurozone creates uh, volatility in global markets and that indeed does affect Australia, as it did with Brexit. So yes, that is a source of potential volatility going forward. Um, I, I don't think ultimately it's terminal. I think it will create buying opportunities as the Eurozone crises of a few years ago did. Um, but that volatility might be with us for a while yet. It's going to be a bit of a slow burn on Italy because I don't think they have to put a budget in until later this year. So we won't, we may not know what their real policies are till as we get closer to September. Um, but uh, yeah, it is going to be a source of volatility. Now, the other issue that uh, Philip Lowe raised last week was about Chinese debt and that causing a risk to the Australian economy. What's your view about that? I, I'm not that fussed about that issue. It's certainly an issue to be alert in regard to, but not alarmed. And the reason I say that is that, yes, their level of debt has gone up dramatically. Yes, it's quite likely that uh, some of the loans that have been made would turn bad. Um, and that's the problem when debt goes up rapidly. In China's case, most of the increase in debt or the rapid increase in debt has been related to the corporate sector. Um, and that's the area to keep an eye on. The reason I'm not too fussed, though, is is twofold. Firstly, a, a lot of the uh, borrowing by the corporate sector in China is related to fiscal policy. So when the government wants to stimulate things, they often get some of their state-owned enterprises to do it, to do the spending. So if these uh, if these loans turn sour, then the government would probably intervene and uh, provide some support. Secondly, and most importantly, China actually borrows from itself, and it can do that because it has a massive savings rate. It saves about 46% of their, of their GDP. In Australia, we save about 22%. So it doesn't borrow from foreigners, so you're not going to see any uh, foreign currency crisis as foreigners panic out. They borrow from themselves. 
And the problem there is that they, they, they just save so much that it's reinvested in their mainly through their banks um, because they don't have much of an equity market compared to what we have in share of overall financing. It's relatively small. So most of the saving goes through the banks. And, of course, when bank gets money, it's called debt. So what they really need to do to solve this problem, I think, is quite simple. They need to save less and spend more, and virtually the opposite to what most countries do when they've got too much debt. And they need to uh, develop their equity market so more of their savings goes through equity. So I think it's a very different problem to other countries that run into debt issues where the solution is to save more and spend less. China actually needs to save less and spend more. So I think a lot of these concerns about China are a bit overblown, notwithstanding the fact that there is an issue there to be alert, alert about. So in other words, what China needs to do is save less and turn more of its savings into equity. That's right. That's right. That's the very issue um, here. Um, trouble, trouble at the moment is they save too much and it all goes into the banking system and gets called debt. Um, solution to that is save less, spend a bit more, which I think they can probably afford to do. And uh, when they do do their savings, put more of it through the equity market. They need to develop their, their pension system a bit more like, like our superannuation system. That could be a way to encourage more money going into long-term savings rather than getting stuck in the banks and getting called debt. Now, I take it the volatility of the share market will probably remain high because of US inflation eaching up and interest rates moving up and issues around President Trump like trade, the Mueller inquiry and North Korea. Uh, all of these will continue in, to impact. Uh, what's your view about this? And uh, looking forward ahead, uh, is there a medium term trend in all of this? Well, I think that the trend in share markets is still higher simply because the global economy is still in good shape and profits are rising solidly. So that should underpin further gains in markets. But yes, I do think it's going to remain a, a, a more volatile year. We were somewhat spoiled last year with relative stability, particularly in the US share market. Um, and of course, the focus from Donald Trump last year was all on tax cuts, deregulation, and the market liked that. Whereas this year, it's a, it's a midterm election year, so we're back to politics. Trump is back in campaign mode, and he's focusing on things that are, that are more popular or populist, if you want to put it that way, hence trade and so on. And then you've got the Mueller inquiry sort of hovering around him and, of course, the North Korean issue. So I, I do think, yes, it's going to be uh, continued volatility <clears throat> as we go through um, this year, at least up until the midterm elections. There is a bit of a, a pattern there that you see a bit of volatility and weakness ahead of midterm elections, and then the market tends to rally, in the US that is, very strongly into year-end after those elections are out of the way. But the other fundamental factor you referred to there is, of course, the uh, the rise in US inflation and gradual tightening by the Fed, and that's going to cause volatility as well, particularly in the US share market. And I think ultimately it means that US shares being or end up being a relative underperformer globally this year and I would actually see, despite the issues regarding Italy, I would see Europe and maybe even Japan being relative outperformers compared to the US. And Australia is probably going to be somewhere in between there. I think overall global shares probably do a bit better than Australia, particularly if the Aussie dollar goes down. Um, but uh, but um, Europe, but Australian shares sort of do okay, sort of continue to muddle along. We've got somewhat softer profit growth in Australia, which is a relative constraint for our market. But things are still okay in the Aussie economy. There's no sign of recession. Reserve banks on hold, so that probably means the share market can continue to move higher, just at a slower pace than say 
eurozone or maybe even Japanese shares. And uh, in terms of Reserve Bank uh, making a move on interest rates, you probably don't see that till a 2019 or even a 2020 story. That's right. We were looking at a 2019 hike and then um, we, we came to the view that it's hard to see growth picking up to that 3% plus pace that the Reserve Bank's been talking about on a sustained basis. So you might get a spike to 3%, but I don't think it'll be sustained. And I think the problem in Australia is that, yes, we've got uh, a bunch of things that are going to stop us falling into recession. We'll keep growth going. Non-mining investment looks to be picking up. Infrastructure spending very strong. Export volumes looking good. The big slump in mining investment looks to be over. All those things are positives. Flip side, though, is that housing construction is losing momentum. Still very strong, but the rate of growth is slowing down. And, of course, there's uncertainty about the consumer or household spending because of uh, falling home prices in Sydney and Melbourne or gradually falling home prices in Sydney and Melbourne and very low wages growth. So it's a sort of a, a bit of a mixed bag in Australia. And I think ultimately that will translate an ongoing weakness in, uh, in wages growth and inflation and keep the Reserve Bank on hold. And of course, you've got to throw in another factor there. And it's become highlighted as we go through the Royal Commission. And that is the bank's are now undertaking a tightening in their lending standards. Um, some of the banks have even come out and said, you know, it's going to be a bit tougher getting a loan from us now as they uh, they focus more on, on borrowers' income levels and expenses. And I think that tightening in lending standards is, is a de facto monetary tightening, which the Reserve Bank will also take account of and is another reason why I think they're going to remain on hold for a lengthy period, probably now up to 2020. We don't see a, a rate hike out till 2020. Well, Shane Oliver, it's always a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. It's been nice talking to you. Thank, Thank you. you. So what's happening in the news? Well, oil is headed for its longest run of losses in more than three months as Saudi Arabia and Russia consider raising output and as US production gains show no signs of abating. The slump in the oil price has wiped out all of its gains in May. The rout in the price has weighed heavily on stocks globally. The Organisation of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, as well as top producer but non-OPEC member Russia, started withholding supplies in 2017 to tighten the market and prop up prices, which in 2016 fell to their lowest in more than a decade at less than $30 a barrel. Prices have soared since the start of the cuts last year, with Brent breaking through $80 a barrel earlier in May, triggering concerns that high prices could crimp economic growth and stock inflation. To address potential supply shortfalls, Saudi Arabia, de facto leader of producer group OPEC, as well as top producer Russia, said on Friday they they were discussing raising oil production by some 1 million barrels per day. Meanwhile, Surging U.S. crude production also showed no signs of abating as drillers continued to expand their search for new oil fields to exploit. Now, global financial markets were also hit by Italy, the Eurozone's third largest economy. It's still without a government since an inconclusive vote in early March, with anti-establishment political groups abandoning their efforts to form a coalition last weekend amid a dispute with the country's head of state. The market is now fearful that another election campaign could focus on Rome's continued membership of European institutions like the EU and Euro. And the prospect 
of a fresh election becoming a referendum on the nation's inclusion in the Eurozone has rattled global financial markets. It's a nightmare scenario that has worried financial markets for close to a decade now. The prospect of a debt crisis in Italy. Now, the Australian government plans to take its tax package to the Senate before June the 28th, after One Nation leader Pauline Hanson flagged she might drop her opposition to the business tax cuts. The vote before the Parliament rises for the winter break on June the 28th sets a deadline and potentially paves the way for an early election. If the Senate rejects it, the government could either drop the corporate tax plan or test it at the polls. This will only add to the speculation that Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had been planning to take Australia back to the polls before the end of the year. Senator Hanson, who had announced her opposition to the corporate tax cuts last week, seems to have had a change of heart with a latest news poll showing 63% of people either favour the government's business tax cuts being put in place as soon as possible or over the next 10 years as planned. Now, a landmark Productivity Commission report has found that not-for-profit industry super funds both generally outperform retail for-profit funds and account for up to 10 of Australia's 26 underperforming default funds. One $10 billion industry superannuation fund was found to significantly underperform for up to 250,000 members. The Commission's scathing review opens up the union-backed industry to further attacks from the coalition, which is seeking unprecedented levels of transparency within the $2.6 trillion sector. The Commission has recommended legislation that would require trustees disclose individual director performances, maintain a skills matrix, and run third-party evaluations across boards. The Commission has stopped short of the wealth management industry's wishes to entirely rip up the default supermarket, instead commending well-performing not-for-profit funds and recommending a new body to help encourage savers to invest in better performing funds. The draft report also pushes for an end to the proliferation of multiple accounts that would rip up $1 billion a year in contributions from underperforming funds, and it recommends removing workplace bargaining agreements from the retirement system. Now, foreign investment in Australia's residential property market has plummeted by almost two-thirds as tighter regulations both here and abroad start to bite. The Foreign Investment Review Board annual report found both the number and value of residential applications dropped significantly through 2016. On FIRB figures, the value of residential property approvals in 2016-17 was $25 million. That's down from $72 million the year before. The number of residential approvals over the same period fell 67% to 13,198 last year. Now, Australia's consumer watchdog says more cars fitted with defective and potentially deadly airbags are set to be recalled after another one million were added to the list. The latest list, announced by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, brings the total number of cars recalled nationally to four million. The ACCC added the Audi A5, Mercedes-Benz C-Class, Skoda Octavia, Ford Mondeo, Volkswagen Golf, Holden Cruise and Toyota Toyota Yaris, among other models, to show a new future recall list. The ACCC has also revealed another 25,000 of the most dangerous older Takata airbags, known as Alpha bags, are still on the road. Now, the airbags inflators contain a defective gas, and they have the potential to explode and spray metal shrapnel into drivers and passengers. To date, Takata airbags have been responsible for more than 230 injuries 
and at least 23 deaths worldwide, including one fatality in Australia. Now, Optus is planning to cut around 400 jobs as part of its plans to make a step change in its efforts to remain buoyant in an increasingly competitive local telco market. Optus Chief Executive Alan Liu told staff on Tuesday that the decision was made in a bid to future-proof the company as it goes through a step change. The telco's workforce was 8,526 strong at the end of last financial year, including retail employees, with about 2,000 on the core staff. No retail outlets are expected to be shut as a result of the redundancies, which are likely to be primarily affecting management, administration and areas of duplication across all divisions. Last week, Optus announced it would close subsidiary brand Virgin Mobile, cutting 200 jobs and closing 36 stores across the country. A year ago, 320 jobs were cut across the business. Optus plans to use cost savings to fund future investment and streamline the company, with Australia's biggest telcos being urged by shareholders and analysts to take defensive action in the face of major competition and declining margins on mobile products. Lawyers representing up to 300,000 litigants, are planning an $80 billion action against mortgage lenders, mortgage brokers and financial regulators in a class action that would dwarf previous actions. Sydney-based Chamberlain's has been appointed counsel for the action that is expected to commence preliminary hearings in November and it could run for several years. Now, Financial Services Ombudsman Philip Field has defended its approach to resolving disputes between banks and small business customers, but he accepted that it needed to articulate its expectations more clearly. Mr Field was asked to explain his and his organisation's role in a dispute in which Suncor demanded a recent widow repay a $226,000 loan within 12 months, a loan that the Financial Services Ombudsman declared should never have been granted in the first place. Mr Field told the Hain Royal Commission that the Ombudsman's expectations in relation to loans deemed irresponsible were, quote, hidden away on an archive somewhere, and he admitted to counsel assisting Rowena Orr QC that the organisation should have done a better job in communicating its expectations to the banks. Now, Australian New Zealand Banking Group said it sold its One Path Life New Zealand Insurance Group to Cigna, for New Zealand, $700 million, that's $642 million Australian dollars. It's all part of a trend that has seen Australian banks continue to back away from in life insurance. Fortescue Metals Groups plans to spend US $1.27 billion building a new iron ore mine in Western Australia. The new mine, to be called Eliwana, will replace the Firetail Mine, which is shut down at the end of its life. The project is the first of three possible mine approvals in the iron ore sector this year, and it's all part of Fortescue's plans to increase the average grade of its iron ore. The Fortescue investment in the mine will start in 2019, and most of it will be spent in 2020. Production will begin in December 2020. And global funds giant Blackstone has made a $3.1 billion offer to take over listed property trust Investor Office Fund as merger and activity action heats up in the real estate investment trust sector. Under the proposal, investor office fund shareholders will receive $5.25 cash per share, although that total will be reduced by any distributions declared or paid by IOF after May the 4th. In effect, the Blackstone proposal represents an offer price of about $5.15 a share. The proposal, which is unsolicited, 
indicative and non-binding, has won early support from the directors of investor-listed funds management, which oversees the listed trust. And Australia's struggling bricks and mortar retailers are facing further upheaval, with online retail behemoth eBay announcing a new membership delivery service for internet shoppers. The offer, to be known as eBay Plus, will give shoppers unlimited deliveries and returns on new items bought from thousands of Australian retailers for an annual $49 fee. eBay Plus, which will be active from mid-June, is aiming to stimulate online shopping in Australia. And Telstra is facing intense competition and weak profitability, which led to it being hit with a downgrade by credit ratings agency Standard & Poor's. S&P downgraded Telstra's long-term rating to A-, that's down from A, while the short-term rating has fallen to A-2, down from A-1. And this coincides with the Shilco's share price dropping to $2.84, which is around its lowest price in seven years. And And that's it for this week. And next week, we have a terrific interview with Ronan Leonard. Ronan Leonard runs Mastermind, which is a business mentoring service. And it brings together businesses to discuss their ideas. And he focuses on small businesses. And it's going to be a great conversation. In the meantime, keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care and looking forward to talking to you next week. 